Thanks for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, check us out at cbctaylorville.com. Join us now as Pastor Steve delivers this week's message. As you're seated this morning, why don't you just say hi to somebody? Tell them you're so glad that they're here today. way to introduce the idea of judgment and a courtroom. And uh, for those of you who are not familiar, somebody tell me, who was that? What was that? Perry Mason. If you're under 40, check out TV Land. You'll figure it out, okay? Um, But uh, what a classic way. Who doesn't like just a good courtroom drama, right? Just uh, some of the, whether it's Perry Mason or Law and Order or Judge Judy. I mean, uh, who doesn't just like a little courtroom drama? Like, or, you know, you can't handle the truth, right? We all, there are certain things about that 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 intrigue us. And so that kind of sets the mood for what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about having or getting your day in court, and we are still talking about this, uh, this concept of the power of the good news, and we'll, we'll continue to move through that. And in fact, Romans chapter 1, which is how it's introduced to us, we get into the idea of the good news. Paul begins, again, as we've said several times, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I, I, I underline some words because I want to make sure you grab some of these key words in this verse that we've read so many times. But he mentions the gospel, which that's good news by simple definition. I'm not ashamed of that good news because it is the power of God. There's something intrinsically powerful about this good news. And it brings salvation. Now look at these next couple of words. To everyone who believes. That's a very important word. He gets very universal in these first several chapters, and he mentions everyone, and then he describes them as first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. In a a Jewish form of saying, what that means is that's everybody, okay? The Jews felt like there was two people in the world. You're either a Jew or you're not, okay? You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. So when they say that, that phrase repeated over and over, all the Jews and Gentiles, what they're saying, it's everybody. For those of us who are under the, you know, the, 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 idea of Judaism and those not. So it's all-inclusive, and this gospel relates to each one of us. But as we've said, before we get, as he introduces, he begins to explain this good news, he starts with the idea of of the bad news, as we'd say it. There's the, 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 the understanding of how bad it is that makes this good news that much better. I heard a story this week from right within our church and I just wanted to share it. Just kind of made me smile, and you'll understand why. One of our young men, Miles, uh, was asked by a teacher this week. They, just an instructor, they actually asked the question. Okay, guys, I've got good news and bad news. Remember, we talked about which do you want to hear first? And Miles said, "Oh, let's hear the bad news." And the teacher actually said, "Really? Seriously? You want to hear the bad news first? And I, and this is the best of the quotas I got. Here's what Miles said. Well, it's like this. Sometimes you have to hear the bad news so you can really appreciate the good news. And then he said to his parents, I sounded like Pastor Steve. <laughs> yes! I love it! 
perfect, right? Somebody's actually listening. That's phenomenal, okay? So that's what we've been talking about. We're looking about the good news, but to understand it and to, and to appreciate it, you've got to understand the bad news. And so this gospel, this good news begins, and here's how the bad news starts. Romans 1.18 says, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all there's that word again. See how universal Paul gets? All the godlessness and wickedness of people. The wrath, the wrath of God. It's not a popular phrase. We've talked about that. In fact, the, the enemy, I believe, has helped our society kind of make a caricature of anyone who would talk about the wrath of God. And you, you know what I'm talking about. They kind of paint this picture that if you say wrath of God, then that means you're, you're, you're this crazy person with uh, the sign that says God hates you. And it, that's, that's the picture. If you believe in wrath you, you, and the anger of God, then that's, and, and that just gives us this idea that we want to back off. But, but understand, the wrath is real. The anger of God is, is throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. This is something we must understand. To be able to get to the good news, the bad news is very clear. There is this, this wrath, this understanding of his, of his anger. Well, we move to chapter number 2, and as we saw in review, God, uh, Paul introduces a new word into the book of Romans, and that's the word judge or judgment. Here's what he says. Now we know that God's judgment, that's the first time, against those who do such things is based on truth. The wrath of God, it comes through the judgment of God. And actually, he goes on to say, he puts the two together, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Okay, so God's wrath, is, is, as he's explaining it, comes as God places a judgment, and that judgment then brings the sentence of God's wrath. Are you kind of starting to see this, what, what, kind of painting a picture? Kind of these first few chapters, Paul is kind of taking us to a, a courtroom. A courtroom, if you would, where God as the judge stands in this place. Here's what we got. Though people may not like the word of wrath, what we've got is the wrath of God is God's holiness coming in direct conflict with the sinfulness of man. There has to be clash there. There's, there's too much. It's completely polar opposites. Absolute holiness, man's sinfulness, when you bring those together, there's a clash, and that's where the wrath of God comes. And this judgment is that which then, as God says, it's in the case of all this comes together. But as we move on down, God being the judge, God setting this, this courtroom scene, verse number 11 of chapter 2, Paul says, and this is really important, God does not show favoritism, does not show partiality. Now, on one hand, that in itself is very good news. Think about it. God doesn't look at you based on somebody else sitting next to you. He doesn't compare you and say, well, I like them better than I like you. Or you're not as bad as they are. Or, or they're much better than you. He doesn't, God, God doesn't look at people with partiality. That's good news. But the bad news is that's talking about judgment. And what he's saying is, whoever you are, Jew, Gentile, he uses that phrase again, everyone, God is going to judge you without impartiality. Based on his holy standard, all of us are judged by the same exact standard. No partiality. You don't, you don't get off for good behavior with, based on that judgment. We are judged without partiality. So what we're seeing is a language of a courtroom. So today we've kind of set that up just hoping. And, and actually, I actually bring my chair in because I think this is a great way to preach like this, right, okay? But the whole point is this. We're, we're, we're seeing in these chapters, and I hope I can paint that picture for you today, that Paul is helping us enter into a courtroom. 
And we have things like we're going to have judgments, we're going to have evidence, we're going to have charges filed, and ultimately we're going to have a verdict that is rendered in these chapters. All of that coming from this courtroom in which God stand as the, the judge, right? It's as if all rise, the most honorable, almighty God is presiding over this courtroom. And in this precision, he's going to weigh the evidence, going to level the charges, and ultimately proclaim his verdict when everything is said and done. Now, here's as we get to this, um, this very title, Getting Our Day in Court. That's often used from people that they want to get their day in court because they feel like if I can get my side told, that's going to exonerate me. If I can, you know, you, you can have, you, you say what you want, but if I get my day in court, then I'm going to be able to say what, and my side, and, it, and, and they, they're ready to speak. Here's what you're going to find. At the end of this courtroom session, there's silence. The defense has nothing to say once this courtroom session is complete. And this just adds this whole drama of what God has us to do. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking in chapters 2 and 3 again of Romans. We set up this, this, this seat. We have God as the impartial, all-knowing judge sitting in, sitting in his seat. We have, and let's make sure we understand who is on trial here. <laughs> Jew, Gentile, everyone. So who is on trial here? Somebody tell me. Everyone. You're on trial. I'm on all of us. We are, the ones, we are the ones facing the charges in this. And every person that's ever lived and ever will live, they, they stand in this courtroom before an almighty, all-knowing, impartial judge. All right, so in this court, here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through some things that, that happen in a courtroom, and at least in the vernacular that we understand it. And I want to show you how Paul does this and where that ultimately leads to. First thing is this. The evidence is indisputable. Oh, man, where did that come from, right? Okay, we're going to talk about, the, first of all, this, this evidence. Let me take you to chapter, uh, we, we actually, we've already read, Paul kind of starts the evidence compiled in verse, chapter eight, 1 and verse 18, and we're going to walk through that. But let's go where we left off a couple weeks ago, chapter 2 and verse number 12. Listen to what he says. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now notice, when he talks, uses that word again, there's that universal term. He says all, when he's using that, he's, he is now setting up the world into two categories. His Jewish brothers and sisters said it was Jew-Gentile. Paul says, no, there's two categories of people, but it's different. All who are under the law, all who are, who are not under the law, there's two people, Jews, Gentiles, but he's going to make clear which side that is, and we'll, we'll see as he gets into it. So literally he's saying, if you're under the law, apart from the law, Gentiles, if you're under the law, the Jews. But notice what he says. Here's another new word that's entered into Romans. First time it's going to be used, it's the word law. Now, that word's going to be used 70-plus times in the book of Romans, so it becomes a very important, a very powerful word in this book. But the first time we see it is right here in these verses, those who are apart from the law, those who perish apart from the law, and so forth. Seventy times it's used, and so let's make sure we understand what he means by law, okay? Because we know what, when we say law, we have some ideas, for one, when we know law, we know laws as in uh, things that the government or authorities have set up, right? And you have broke the law, okay? You're going 65 and a 55. You have broke the, 
Okay, I don't mean to be personal, okay? I just say, you know, okay, just trying to make an illustration. You broke the law, okay? That's one way. We also know laws such as uh, things that are in place that you can observe that don't change. Laws of physics, law of gravity, right? Those are things that we know are in place and we can observe them. And so those are things that always, that's what we, but we know that he's not talking about those kind of laws, right? On the spiritual side, there are some who, when they see the law, they think of all the things that God has that would help us live holy, just as a law and general way of living. Possibly there are some illustrations of that throughout the scripture, but Paul is much more specific than that. He uses this term a lot in his writings, but specifically here in Romans. And the word, we would pronounce it nomos, the word law or nomos is literally referring to a, an Old Testament passage of Scripture. It's very specific. It would be, you may have heard the term. It would be what the Jews would refer to as the Torah. You know, Torah, 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 right? The Torah is what, what Paul is referring to, which we know to be the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That is what is referred to specifically as the law. So 90 plus percent of the time that Paul talks about it in Romans, he is specifically referring, and there, the context tells us that, he's just specifically referring to those, that law, that written section that God gave to Moses and it came to the, the, the people of Israel. So when he's saying now, all those who are apart from the law, that means Gentiles who were not brought up under the, the Torah. All those who are under the law are Jews who had access and who had learned it. So he's literally saying, again, Gentiles and Jews all in association to this law. But the Jews are still under judgment even though they had the law. And they say, well, we, we're under the law, so we have a special... And remember, God is impartial. God is, shows no favoritism because then he makes it very clear. It's not if you know the law that it makes a difference. It's those who do the law that makes a difference. So here's the point. If you want to stand before this judge and you want to declare some sort of innocence or some, some... You would have to be able to say that you have kept the law, first five books, perfectly. There's a little section in there, we call it the Ten Commandments, right? Ten Suggestions, right? Those Ten Suggestions right there. Okay? If, if you could walk through even those Ten Commandments and have never broken them in any form or fashion, not only in action, but as Jesus said, even in thought, because lust is as adultery and hatred, and hatred is as murder. So if you could walk through even those ten perfectly from birth to where you are right now. If any of, here's what we know. I'm sitting in a room full of thieves, liars, murderers, adulterers, correct? You're looking at one. There is not one of us in this room who can say, according to this, that I kept the law, have kept it perfectly. What he's saying here, he's putting us all in, there's no partiality. The law becomes God's standard for his judgment. As he sets in here, his standard, his law is, hey, I gave it to you, first five books. Let's see how you did. Let's see how you did just in comparison to those first five books. Now, some people would say, well, that's not fair to the Gentiles because they didn't grow up under the law. So they didn't get the same understanding. Well, Paul addresses that. Look at the next verse, verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law 
do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences are bearing witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. He says, even if you've never heard the Ten Commandments, even if you've never heard them, God also, as creator, put an, an inboard system. He put something within us, Jew or Gentile. We refer to it as our conscience, our thoughts. God says, I have put an inward mechanism within every human being that even if you've not heard the law, there's a red flag that waves that says, I shouldn't be doing this. That's our conscience. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. There is that, that, that part of us that knows deep down in the back, and here's the problem. Our consciences are not our most reliable source of, of information because your conscience can be deceived. You can also ignore your conscience for such a long time that eventually, you, as we say, you sear it so you don't, you don't sense it as much or even at all. There are some people that just they seem to be without conscience. Well, they've had one. At some point, they've, they've shut it off to the point where it do, doesn't even affect it. But the point is this. God put in every person, Jew, Gentile, this conscience. So even if they've not heard the specifics, they may not know all the, the details. They know there is an, an issue there. There's a conscience. There's thoughts that are telling us. What is Paul doing? He's just compiling a list of evidence that would say that everyone, in, in the sound of his voice that's reading his letter, all that I'm talking to this morning and every person you're going to meet, he's compiling the evidence standing before the judge of whether we are culpable for our, our, our mistakes, our sins. Let me show you how he's compiled this. Let's take a little review just for a moment. Go back to chapter 1, verse number 18. He says that people who suppress the truth are without excuse. And he says, hey, listen, I made myself very plain. Creation, I, if you want to say there's no God, you've got to ignore a lot of facts in, 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 in evidence to do that. He said, and so the, if, you, if you say there's no God, well, there's no excuse for you because you, you've, you've just missed it. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 1. Now you also have no excuse if you judge others, but you still sin. So if you look at somebody else say, oh, you're a bad person, but down deep you know you're not perfect either, and you're waving your finger at others because you're better than they are, he said, you have no excuse either. He, he's, anybody hearing this, seeing this? He moves on down, and we just read it. All who sin will be judged by, okay, now here's the thing. If you've ever if you've broken any of those laws in any form or fashion, if you've not kept any of them in, in any way faithfully, if any, then, then you're also, that's the evidence piled against you. He goes down, and we read it again. Now he adds to that their conscience. If at some point your conscience told you you shouldn't do that, and you did it anyway, or you did it and your conscience says you shouldn't have done that, if you've had any of that, what Paul is saying is there's, there's sin there. Here's the evidence against this. And if that's not enough, Paul adds one more in verse number 16. Look at this. This will all take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now that's some thorough investigation. He doesn't just look at what you have done, what you have said. He looks at your secrets. The things that you hope nobody ever finds out. God's already seen them. That uh, hidden security camera was running when you did it. And all that evidence is admissible. All that evidence of things that you thought God would never see and, God, and others have not ever. No one else knows. God who sees your secret life is going to hold you. you. You see the evidence? 
starting to look a little formidable, isn't it? Either I've suppressed God's truth, I've broke God's law, I've defiled my conscience, or I've got some secrets that I hope nobody ever finds out about, but God's going to judge them. The evidence is, light, is, is just crystal clear, and he actually uses a phrase, look at that, and as my gospel declares it. And when you think about God's judgment and wrath, you sometimes think, well, that doesn't sound like good news to me. However, his, that's part of the good news. The fact that we are sinners helps us understand that when the gospel saves us, it just makes it, 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 makes it that much clearer, brighter. I, th- this, this week, I don't know if any of you get up really early in the morning. I know some of you do. Uh, I was up a couple mornings about 4.30 this week, and I happened to go outside, and I don't know if you saw it, the sky was beautiful this week. It was just, the background was clear, black, and the stars just popped. I actually laid down in the back of my truck and just said, wow, God, you're cool. This was just, 4.30 in the morning, my neighbors think I'm nuts. But anyway, that's just, that's just how it goes. But do you understand that the darker the background, the brighter the light shines? And so what Paul's doing with my gospel is he's making it as dark as possible to see that sin is real, and you've all had it, and you've all got it, You've all been affected by it, so when that gospel shines through, it's going to be that much brighter. Does that make sense? He says, my gospel declares this bad news is bad, but the good news is that much better, right? Okay, so the first thing, the evidence, we're sitting in our courtroom, the judge is sitting in his seat, he's listening to the evidence, the evidence is against everyone, it's overwhelming. Here's the second thing, the conclusion is unmistakable. (laughs) I love that. We're going to keep that. I love that, all right? Here it is. The charges are clear, and they're solid. Am am I right? Does anybody disagree with that, that the fact that his charges are pretty clear? Somewhere I find myself in the middle of all of that. Now, last Sunday we looked at Paul's indictment against the Jewish the, the Jewish religion, if you would, and, and his, those who, they honestly, there were many within the Jewish faith that believed that they, because of the mere fact of their nationality and who they were, that they were going to be good enough to, to get past this judgment. They, they'd actually, they were trusting in their religion to do that, which we made the application pretty clearly that there's still a lot of people that maybe are not Jewish, but they still trust in their religion and what they are doing. They really think that's going to, somehow they're going to be good enough to make it. And, and here's the point we learned. Religion, religion was never the way to, to come to God. Religion, worship as we defined it, should be a result of our relationship with God. It, you, religion doesn't save you, but you should worship if you do know the Savior. So we talked about all that. Well, now look how he's addressing all the people, all the evidence. And if you haven't been keeping record, he's now, he has now judged the Gentiles. He's judged the moral people, whether Jews or Gentiles. They just think they got it good. They've judged the religious Jews. He's, he's judged all the people, all religious people in general. And he comes with this conclusion, verse number 9. So what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? He's talking to his Jewish brothers who think that, do we have any advantage? Not at all. Our religiousness doesn't help us at all in this verdict, for we have already made the charge, here he goes again, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. There it is, Jews and Gentiles, which means everyone is now under the power of sin. Now, that's an interesting phrase. You might mark it, because when he says under the power of sin... He's making a distinction here. Power is another word Paul has used in some of his writings. And one time he talked about that uh, you might be under the power of a school teacher. Another time he talked about slaves are under the power of their master. 
So what this word power is saying is, it's repeating, when you're under the power, it means you're under the authority. You're under the, the, the influence of something else. And so what he's saying is, the, the whole world, Jews, Gentile, we're under, we're dominated by sin. Let me see if I can help you understand this. When I say the word sin, most of us in this room, for whatever, whatever you come from, when we think of sin, you immediately begin to think of a list of things that you should or should not do. And I've already listed some. Sin would be murder, adultery, stealing, cheating. We, we, we have our list of sins, okay? And that is true. The Bible actually gives us the, the law. We understand that that, but, but what Paul now takes us to is it goes deeper than that. There, there is a difference between sin and sins, Sins are this list of things that we do. Sin, the power of sin that controls us, now goes deep within us, and it begins to describe something that that is on the inside of us. It's not just that we have done wrong things, but the truth is we are Christless. We have no no, uh, goodness within us. We 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 sin, we do those things because we are sinners. It comes from this inside. We are under the power of sin in our lives as human beings. That's the way, it's, it's, it's kind of like the difference between a, a, a disease, the symptoms, and the cure for a disease or a sickness, right? If you just treat the symptoms and you, you do whatever you can to mask the symptoms, you may feel better for a while, but ultimately the, the issue is still there. And so if all we do is deal with the sins and you get someone to stop sinning, stop doing those things, and stop those habits, get rid of those addictions. If you stop those things, and you never deal with the heart of sin, it's no more than putting a cold compress on someone with a fever if you don't deal with the infection. The infection is we are all sinners. We are born sinners before a holy God. That's why we sin. We sin because of of the inside. And Paul says that we are all, Jew, Gentile, everyone is under the power of sin. And to make his point even more clear, Paul does something very interesting in the next few verses. He now quotes from the Old Testament. And he's going to make, if you'll notice in the verses, some of them are written on your outline and you'll see them on the screen, you'll see quotation marks. Because he's literally taking quotes right from the Psalms, from Isaiah, from different prophets, and he's just pulling at least six different quotations about this condition of our lives from the Old Testament. Now that's kind of, there's some great reasons for that. It gives us power. It gives those Jews who are listening, because now they may not have believed a word he said, and all of a sudden now he starts quoting the prophets, and they're like, yeah, I heard that growing up. Here's, here's the thing. What he's done is he's brought the Old Testament into the New Testament, and he's showing us that the Old Testament is not something we forget. It was actually helping to explain. He brings that in, and now he's looking at a group of Jews, and they said, yeah, we heard that growing up. We just never believed it applied to us. And Paul is saying this applies to all of us. And, and I want you to see some of these quotes that he's going to, to, to get to. But before we do, before I get to the first one, I've got to remind you of one other phrase. This gospel that Paul talks about, back in chapter 1, verse number 17, he says, the gospel, the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, the righteousness of God means that God is absolutely righteous in everything he does. He is, he's not just a God who does good things or right things. He is righteous. He is, he is absolutely embodied in righteousness, and this gospel is going to reveal that. It's going to show that to us. So now, when we come to this first verse, Verse number 10, remember we're talking, but we're looking at basically like magnetic north, right? There is a way to go, and 
if you go short of that, you're not truly going north. God is north. He is righteous. Okay, look at the next phrase. There is no one righteous. Quote from the Old Testament. First phrase. God is absolutely righteous and none of us are. Not a one of us in this room. Oh, we may have, we may have you know, argue and talk about some of the, th- he says, but you, you have no clue. You are not righteous. There is no one that is righteous. Uh, he, he goes on to say, not even one. In case you missed the first thing I said, none of you are righteous. Not one of you is righteous. Quoting the old, it's, they've known this all their lives, and now he's just making it more clear. It, it, here's the point that I think maybe will help us understand. That there's not any of us, in and of ourselves, that have the ability to stand before God in this, in this judgment seat, in what we, who we are, we, because we have no righteousness. This is an absolute righteous courtroom. You bring none. Now, some would argue that I, but look, I, I'm not as bad as, and we've talked about it, and we grade on a curve, but let's, let's, just be, let's just be clear. If I took you all to Hawaii, well, that would be a nice thought, but anyway, let's say we all go to Hawaii, we're all going to stand on the shore, okay, the bus is leaving here soon, okay, we're standing on the shore, and I say, okay, now, I want you to jump from this shore to the mainland, okay, that's your only thing, that's all, all I'm asking. I'll pay for everything if you can jump from here to the mainland. Okay, now here's what would happen. There's a few of you that you'd make an, you'd make an athletic jump and you'd be out, oh, foot and a half at least. I mean, you'd get out there in the water. Some of you would have some skills. Compared to one another, compared to one another, some of you would go a long way. But compared to the distance that you have to get across, it'd be, it wouldn't be act like you didn't move at all. Do you see the difference? It doesn't matter how far you think you can jump, you're still not going to get to the goal. In life, sometimes people have categorized themselves in such a way that they think they're moving, getting there closer. Here's the thing. We're all trying to jump from where we are to where God is. I don't care what legs you got. You're not making it because no one is righteous. He goes on to say in the next phrase, there is no one who understands. Listen to this. Here's the Paul. He's quoting from the Old Testament, using this. The Old Testament told us none of you understands, which means if you had the ability, if you had the legs to get from point A to point B, you wouldn't know how or when. You don't get it. You have no spiritual, you are spiritually ignorant, he says. You don't even understand. You're not going to know God in and of your mind. People that say, I, I get it about, and, and they, they you, anything that you know about God has not come from you. In fact, let me show you a scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. This is what Paul said. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and he cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. There are some things that spiritually you're never going to get unless the Spirit opens your mind. Unless the Spirit makes it real, you're not going to understand it because there's no one who has the capability because of who we are humanly to know God and follow him in and of yourself, which leads to this next phrase. He goes on to say, there's no one who understands, and he also says, there's no one who seeks after God. He says, there is no one who seeks. Now, some would argue, oh, wait a second. We, in fact, churches use sometimes the term seeker as far as people who are coming and they're looking for something. Well, that I would agree with. There are people all around us that are looking for something. They're seeking, and they don't, the truth is they don't know what they're looking for, but there's something missing, and they seek, and sometimes they think they can find it in church. Fantastic. But the truth of what he's saying is, in and of yourself, you're not even looking for God. 
Even religious people who aren't following God, and there are a lot of them, even their religion is not truly seeking God. They're seeking something to make themselves feel better. They're seeking something to replace God. But no one in and of themselves, he says, the indictment is you cannot seek God in and of yourself. You don't, you're not righteous. You don't understand. You don't seek. He goes on to say, all have turned away. That's the song that we sang earlier, Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. We even put songs to it, right? I did it my way, right? We, we live that. That's our direction because, and here's the thing, unless you're going north, true north, you may have directions and you're going straight somewhere, but you're not going towards God because all of us turn aside our own way. We all go to keep reading what he says and all have become worthless. Now, Paul's starting to get used some words we're not going to like. He said spiritually, worthless means useless, it actually was a word used for rancid milk, soured milk. How many like to take your carton and pull the lumps out, right? He says that's what you're described spiritually as in the sight of a holy God. I mean, Paul's just laying the charges on thick. He goes on to say, there is no one who does good, not even one. Okay, somebody's going to throw a flag right there. Say, wait a second. I've done some good before God. I know some people who don't even believe in God, and they're charitable, and they do good things. How could Paul say that? Is Paul exa- the point is this. Without God, even your goodness, to say that you are perfectly, habitually good, and you do nothing on the other side that's wrong, and all of your motives for doing good are pure and holy, to say that, is, that eliminates everyone you know because at some point, you're not going to be, do good. And that's what he's saying, to habitually do good, to be able to say that all my motives, are, there is not one of us in this room that can t- attest to that particular fact. Not even one. Now that would be enough to kind of sit down and go, whew, thanks Paul, but he doesn't even stop. Look what he, he keeps going. He moves from their character now to their mouth and he says their throats are open graves. He says the words, our conversation, are like rotting bones. That's what they open. It's like the smell that would come from a decaying body. That's the picture he paints of our mouths, of our conversation. He says their tongues practice deceit. They have sweet words, but they're, we know how to lie. We know how to deceive. We know how to get our way across. He says their, their poison of vipers is on their lips. You can take this mouth and you can destroy someone with your very words. And we have all done it at some point and had it done to us at some point. To say that, that sticks and stones will break your bones and words won't hurt you, that's a lie. And we know it because that's what words can do. He goes on to say, and their mouths are full of cursing. And bitterness. And he keeps moving. Verse 15, he moves to your feet and your eyes. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. They're miserable. And the way of peace they do not know. The Bible actually said there's no peace for the wicked. And finally, he says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Ultimately, the fear of God is, in one sense, it's the reverential awe, that knowing of who God is and worshiping him. But there is also that fear of knowing that God hates sin. And since I'm a sinner, there is sin involved in my life. There is, there, that's got to bring us to a point of who, how am I going to stand before this holy God? And he said, there's a lot that just live like that doesn't matter. That's not relevant to me. I live my life. I'll do what I want. Oh, sure, it doesn't feel so good sometimes. But ultimately, they have no fear that they're going to stand before God one day and answer for all of those actions, all of those attitudes. It completely misses their, their, their minds of what God There is no evidence of that in their life. Whew, i got to sit down. Because Paul has just told us 
that all of us are at this courtroom. The charges against all of us are there is no one righteous. None of us can stand before a holy God. And to make it even worse, third thing we talk about is this. The verdict is universal. When you come to the end, it's as if you hear that sound from the courtroom. Will the defendant please rise? And when we have on TV, that's when they scan the face to see what their reaction is going to be to this verdict because they're waiting to hear what the verdict is going to be. Well, listen to what he says, verse 19, chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that, notice here's our universal again, every mouth may be silenced. There's what I was talking earlier. The defense has no witnesses to produce. The defense has nothing to say. There's no way to defend this. There are no technicalities. There are no loopholes. Every mouth is silent. Every mouth is stopped. And notice what he says. And the whole world is held accountable. Or your version may say, has become guilty before God. And the judge says, guilty. The verdict is clear. The verdict is justified. He's laid out all the evidence. All the charges are verified. Verse 20, therefore, here he goes, no one, that means everyone, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. Here's what I found, and and I'm trying to be as transparent as possible. Right in churches, just like we're sitting, there's a lot of people who would very quickly admit that yes, I have sinned, because I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. They're quick to admit that I have sinned. I get it. But to move to the point of I am a sinner, and I'm going to stand before God the judge one day and be declared guilty. Some people haven't gathered that yet. Maybe they don't even want to admit that. Maybe they don't want to take God there. They, don't want to, they want to believe that God is different than that. But what he's saying is, listen, we are all guilty as sinners before a holy God. Let me summarize our case for today. Let's put it all into to review. Guilt is a word that he uses here. The word for accountable is a word for guilt, is a word for standing in condemnation. It's the word guilty. But that's not a real popular word in and of itself in, in our culture today, right? The word guilt. The, the idea that we, we want to say that we're basically good, and that's reinforced by psychologists and counselors and, and even a lot of religious people that's, that in, intrinsically we're all good. There's, a, there's goodness within us, and that's going to that's ultimately can be found and come out. And, and that's just the, the opposite of how God says it. He says intrinsically we're sinful, we're sinners, and there's something that has to be changed. And, and that, and, and that we, we can't escape this guilt. Even though we, we know we, we should have done it, we know it's there. There's a guilt that comes with that. And, and so here's the first part that we got to understand in summary is the fact of guilt is a reality. The fact that we stand guilty before a holy God, that is a fact and evidence that you cannot change. You, have, you are guilty before a holy God. We do not have the ability in and of ourselves to change that. I read a quote this week from a, 
a popular newspaper column several years ago, and I want you to hear her words. She says, one of the most painful, self-mutilating, time and energy-consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day or your week or your life if you let it. And she goes on to describe how even when you, you know, it doesn't matter if you didn't mean to or not, you feel guilty for what you did, and we carry that guilt, and, and ultimately her conclusion is, remember, guilt is a pollutant, and we don't need any more of it in the world. And we would all say, yes, I get there. That's great to say, but here's the point. We don't want guilt. It's unhealthy, but it's real. God doesn't just say guilt to, to guilt us into issues, as we would say. He's trying to show us this is the reality. As a human being, we stand guilty before a holy God. The whole world stands accountable before him. You can try to ignore it. You can say it's not real. You can say, oh, stop judging me. You can get angry. You can try to blame. You can try to hide. You can try whatever. But the point he's making is guilt is real. We stand guilty before a holy God. Here's what else we learned in summary. The result of guilt is not negotiable. You don't get to decide then, well, if I'm guilty and, and I want to decide my punishment or I, I think it should happen this way, those are not up to your decisions. We're guilty before a holy God. We're, we stand based on his law. Now listen to, as you go further in Romans, how he describes it. Chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. He's making that universal again. We're all guilty. We all now face the, the verdict and the sentence of death. In fact, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We've talked about the wrath of God. We've talked about the judgment of God. We've talked about the law of God. All of those things point to one specific thing. As human beings, we stand guilty before a holy God, and the punishment, the sentence of that guilt is, is death. It's destruction. It's separation. It means we don't have a relationship, and eternally, when we die, we will be separated from him forever in the Bible place called hell. That's the ultimate of what this death represents. Now, let's say we stop the sermon right there, and you all go home as depressed as you possibly can be, because that is a very, very strong truth. But I want to give you one more thought. And that's this. The presence of guilt is a choice. Here's where the good news begins to unfold. The bad news we talked about, it'll be weaved off and on throughout the book, but ultimately he's bringing us to this climactic moment of bad news. And I take you back to the verse we just read, verse 19. Every mouth may be silenced. The whole world held accountable. It becomes guilty before God. Verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. If we stop there, then, then the book of Romans is just the most depressing book you've ever read. But that's where it gets good. The very next verse, verse number 21, the first two words, but now. That's the most hopeful conjunction that I've ever heard in the scriptures. We're guilty. There's not one of us that can get out of that. There's nothing I can do to change that, but now, which means that's not the, where the story has to end. You have guilt before God. That's the fact. That's the reality that we've got to come to grips with. But God has good news. 
God has something. He goes on to say, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's a choice. If you stand guilty before God, you have heard this morning that you have a choice that you don't have to stand in that guilt any longer. You don't, have, you don't have to live in the guilt of your past. You don't have to live in the guilt of the things that control you now. You don't have to live in guilt. There is an answer, and that answer comes through Jesus Christ who gave his life for you, who died and his blood was shed for you. Now the choice is to all who believe in him, who put their faith in Jesus Christ, the guilt is removed. The guilt is taken away. The presence, did you do it wrong? Yes, but God through the blood of Jesus Christ can remove the punishment, remove the sentence, remove that. And we're going to talk about some wonderful words that describe that as we walk through Romans. But the point is matter is this. Guilt is real. Forgiveness and washing away that guilt is also just as real through what Jesus did on the cross for you when he died for your sins. In fact, here's how 2 Corinthians describes it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus not only was sinless, that he didn't do anything wrong, he, was not, he had no sin. He was, he was not a sinner as we are that would then do sin. But by his choice, he took your sins, he took my sins upon himself the one who was not, who had no sin at all, he took your sin on himself so that you could then experience the righteousness of God and guilt could be taken away. That's good news. The bad news is dark, but the good news of Christ shines like one of those stars in a black sky. It is the, that you have hope that your guilt can be removed through the blood of Jesus Christ. So here's the conclusion of our courtroom scene. It's real. There's no way getting around the verdict. But the hope is that the judge comes around this table, takes off his robe, and says, I died so you don't have to face this judgment. You don't have to face this. You don't have to live in this guilt. You don't have to, to face it at death. The judge comes and he offered himself on a cross so that you could be forgiven. Now that's good news. But the question is, very clear, for one, has there been a point in your life when you recognized your sta status before the court of God, recognizing your sinfulness, and you repented of your sin and you turned to Jesus for salvation? Has there been that point? Now, now I say that very specifically, and I hope you heard me, that you may have been in church all of your life. You may have said a prayer at some point in your life, but please listen to me. If you, it's possible that you didn't even realize you wanted heaven. You didn't want hell, but did you even realize that the problem was your sin? The problem was you're standing before a holy God as a sinner, and you need to have your sins washed away through the blood of Jesus Christ. Has there been a point in your life when recognizing your need of salvation, your sinfulness before a holy God, and you said, God, forgive me, I repent, and you turned and followed Jesus Christ? Later in Romans, Paul will say it very clearly, Romans chapter 10 and verse number 9, that if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you received this gift? Have you declared your guilt before a holy God and asked in repentance to follow him? Have you received his gift? Regardless of who you are, where you've been from, 
have you come to this place and said, God, I throw myself on the mercy of your court. Forgive me, please, and save me. Let me ask another. Maybe you, you, yes, you have been here. You've confessed that before God, and you're one of his children. Is it possible that right now you're living in guilt? The things that you have done or you are doing, you know that it's not just the conscience. It's the Holy Spirit saying you're one of God's kids. That shouldn't be shouldn't be where you are, or things that maybe you, you're not doing now, but they still just plague you because they, you know, a thing, and you just don't see, and you just feel so unworthy, and so, uh, but, but, and you've forgotten that the blood of Jesus Christ has forgiven you, but now you're living, in, or have lived in such a way. Here's a verse, verse John 1, 9, for us as followers of Christ, if we confess our sins, he, the judge who came around and saved you, is also faithful to forgive us our sins, and wash away our, our sinfulness, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today, the courtroom is real. The guilt is, is it's in evidence. But the freedom and the forgiveness is just as available. That's the good news of Jesus Christ.